Hey, good morning. Merry Christmas. Can I say that? Merry Christmas. So glad that you're here. My name is Ross. If you're our guest this morning, uh, welcome to you as well. And if you weren't here last week as we go into this Advent, this Christmas season, last week we gave each family an Advent guide that we've put together with some friends from another church. Uh, But it is available. We have a few more copies left today as you go out into the lobby at dismissal. Um, This is a great tool. Okay, last week we talked about how the season that we're entering into Uh, This Advent season, officially beginning today in the traditional church calendar, uh, can be one of the busiest, most hectic times of the year. And we've put this together, particularly in the hands of you parents, to, to help us to slow down and to reflect properly this season. So uh, whether you have little ones or older ones or you're empty nesters or you don't yet have a family, there is something in this guide for you, okay? So take one, one per family, and want to encourage you weekly. So there's an, there's an activity to do tonight, uh, a, a candle lighting and some, some scripture for you to read and a little family activity to suggest. So want to make sure you get this. If you don't get a copy, okay, a physical copy, it's available on our website, centennialchurch.com backslash advent, and you can get a PDF of it there, okay? Also, after church, to kick off this season, uh, you might have seen outside, as as Jay announced during our announcements, uh, we've got a little activity for each home to do today. Uh, We're going to create after church a little advent wreath with candles uh, that you can take home and then you can use throughout this season as a family to celebrate. Uh, Our family does it on Sunday evenings. I would suggest just pick a regular time uh, through the week and kind of follow with us through this Advent guide and through this season. Make sense? Got it? All right. Again, glad to have you here. Let me, to begin our message this morning, let me ask you a question. Uh, Don't answer out loud, okay, but think to yourself. Let me ask you a question. When does Christmas begin? When does Christmas begin in your home, uh, in your tradition? For many, I think it's that day after Thanksgiving, right? Uh, maybe, uh, God bless you, you go and do Black Friday. I won't, I'm not here to judge, but you're crazy. Um, for some, it's right that day after Thanksgiving. There's some, there's some yahoos in my neighborhood that their Christmas lights went up before Halloween. Yeah, that's just wrong, isn't it? When does Christmas begin in your home? Well, we all have different, uh, probably, traditions and times, although some of them are common. Let me ask you a more important question than that. Not does when does Christmas begin in your home, but when does Christmas begin in the Bible? When did Christmas begin in history? Did it begin uh, 2,000 years ago in a stable? Did it begin when the angel Gabriel came to a young gal named Mary and gave her quite a surprise? Did it begin six months before that when Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, was said to be born to Elizabeth and Zechariah? When does this Christmas story begin? Uh, some of you, I hope, uh, as we do in our family, often have uh, a time where we read through the Christmas story. And if you are reading through the traditional Christmas story, you will turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. 
Okay, write that down, dads. Write that down, moms, in case you you're said, hey, it's your turn to read the Christmas story. You know where to start. Luke chapter 2. But is that really where the Christmas story begins? Does it begin in Matthew chapter 1 where we have that confusing genealogy about Jesus' family and the history of Israel? This morning, I want to take us back in time to what is the first promise of Christmas. And it's not in Luke chapter 2, it's not in Matthew chapter 1, it's not even in the New Testament, it's actually in the Old Testament. And the first promise we have of Christmas coming is on page 3 of our Bibles, most of our Bibles, in Genesis chapter 3. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you have them, turn to Genesis chapter 3 or turn your Bible on, if you're one of those. Uh, And join me in Genesis chapter 3, an unlikely place, perhaps, to turn for Advent season, but in this passage, kind of somewhat cryptically, we find the first promise of Christmas. And what we'll see is that the first promise of Christmas comes in the midst of chaos and brokenness. In the midst of rebellion and sin, God gives us this promise that he's going to send a savior to put things right, okay? So here we are, Genesis chapter 3, we'll walk through this um, and make some comments as we go along here, but beginning in uh, verse 1, it says, now the serpent, we're introducing chapter 3 to this serpent. God has created animals, but this serpent comes on the scene. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. You actually should probably back up. I didn't put this in the slide, but if you look at the end of chapter 2, the end of chapter 2 ends on an up note. It says, verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Can we say that in church? The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. There was perfection. There was absolute vulnerability and there was absolutely no shame and no fear at the end of chapter two. But what we're gonna find is that we get to the end of chapter three and the feelings in the scene is much different after the following 15 verses. But they begin in perfection. God created a a perfect earth and has humanity and animals and all of creation in perfect harmony, but then something happens, and it happens through the, the temptation of this serpent that the Bible says was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Now, you might have some somebody in your home who's crafty, But that's not the way this word is meant to be. I have someone crafty in my home, but this is is a sneaky kind of crafty. This is not needlepoint or decorating. This is sinister. And the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Okay, beware when you hear those words. Did God actually say the serpent, the evil ones, the enemy Satan's first temptation is to have the woman doubt that God has spoken and what he has spoken. He tempts Adam and Eve at the point 
of the reliability of God's word? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And then look at the next phrase, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, Bible trivia, is that what God had said? Kind of, but not exactly. He said nothing about not touching it. Not only do we have to worry when uh, we're questioning, did God actually say that? But we also have to be suspect when we find that man has added to God's word. No, don't just eat from it. Just don't even touch it. Don't even look at it. And so Satan comes with this temptation. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, and look, now it's point blank, gloves off. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Hey, Eve, chill out. You will surely not die. God's holding out on you. There's something better for you. If you just do this, life will be better. God doesn't want you to have the good life. He doesn't want you to be satisfied. He's holding out on you. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You want that, Eve. You want that. Take it from me. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took fruit and ate Notice now she is, she, her senses has moved from what she's heard from God to what she's seen with her eyes. She saw it and says, it delighted her. And then she desired it and then she took it and she ate it and she gave it to her husband who was right there with her and he ate. And verse seven, and both eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So immediately in verse 7, at the, at the disobedience of man and woman, shame comes. And they see their nakedness. They see their guilt. And so they're trying to hide. They're sewing fig leaves together and making clothes for themselves. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid. There it is again. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. And notice as they are hiding in their rebellion, in their sin, what is God doing? He's coming after them. He's pursuing them. He's reaching out to them even in their sin, even in their rebellion. The Lord called to the man, the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. There it is again, fear, because I was naked and I hid myself. And here's where it looks somewhat very familiar, reminiscent of you and I. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man immediately said, the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then the Lord begins his response to this whole situation by talking with the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the fields. And just as an aside here, as I was reading this this week again, what I noticed is that God curses the serpent and he curses work. He doesn't curse man and woman, but he curses the serpent, he curses work. And uh, you will be cursed above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. He's talking to the serpent again, remember. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And verse 15 is where I want us to focus in this morning where we get this first promise. And we'll read through it and then come back and explain it a little bit. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now let's go back and look at that a little bit more closely because if you read this, you're kind of, okay, it's kind of confusing. What does that mean? But if you look closely at it and commentators beginning even in the second century have called this the Proto-Evangelion. Can you say that with me? The Proto-Evangelion. There's your 25-cent word for Christmas, okay? This is the first evangelist, the first good news, right in here in the midst of rebellion and sin and the world being broken. The Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between the, between the snake and the woman, between the snake and Eve, But that's not all, because he goes on and he says, between your offspring and between your offspring and her offspring. Some of you might have a translation that translate that word offspring, seed. And that's a more graphic picture here in PG language of what is happening. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed. So the serpent has this family this host of demons or minions that are about his work. That's his family, his seed, his offspring. But the woman is going to have offspring as well. In fact, she's going to be named Eve, the mother of all living in verse 21, I think it is, or verse 20. So there's going to be enmity between you, between the snake and the woman, but beyond that, there's a a global, there's a macro level uh, uh, promise here of struggle of a warfare between your offspring and her offspring. But then look at the pronouns in the next phrase. It's her offspring, this seed, this collective group. But verse 15, part B, look at the pronouns. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The pronouns are masculine. He shall bruise your head. The offspring, the seed of the woman. His heel will be bruised, 
but he will bruise the head of the serpent. Jesus will be struck and he will be uh, slain, but he will not be crushed. Satan's head will be crushed. Some of your translations have that instead of, of bruise, they translate it, he will be struck. He shall strike your head or he shall crush your head. Those of you that watched the movie The Passion, they inserted this. It's not in the garden scene. Here we're in the garden. When Jesus goes to the cross, he's praying in the garden of the Gethsemane. And if you remember watching The Passion of the Christ after Christ has, has prayed and has dropped sweats of, sweat of blood, you see the, the cameras roll down to the ground as Jesus steps away and you see the head of a serpent being crushed because Jesus, through his death and resurrection, crushes the enemy. Amen. This is the first gospel, the proto-gospel, the first good news, that though Satan has caused this disruption, this rebellion, has caused man to disobey God, God will ultimately be victorious. Satan's head will be crushed, will be bruised, and isn't that our comfort in Christmas? That the coming of Christ comes uh, at a point of disruption, at, at a point where things are going poorly. God comes and says, I'm going to rescue this. I'm going to fix this. I will have victory over the one who brought this calamity. Good will come, victory will come in the midst of this rebellion. Sin and rebellion don't have the last word in Genesis chapter three, but the promise of renewal, the promise of salvation comes through this seed of a woman who will be Jesus. As we begin to celebrate the Advent season, we know oh so well that the scene that we celebrate Advent in is a broken scene. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, the story of the scripture is, is God working out this salvation plan, working out this rescue plan of humanity, of, of taking what is broken and making it new, of bringing new life out of death, of bringing a new kingdom to the kingdoms of this earth. Everything is broken. You know, we... Uh, Last, last weekend, over the holiday weekend, we decided to do a little project around our house, uh, a little home project. And I, by uh, we, uh, I don't mean me, I mean mostly my dad and me, okay? And I was the assistant. But we decided to redo some shelving in our house to put some floating shelves above the master bath. And uh, it took us two whole days to do this. And, and, and admittedly, I don't have the skills for this, but I'm there helping dad. But what I realized as we were doing this project, even using a brand new uh, saw, thanks to Dave over here who loaned us a, a brand new miter saw, we're making this cuts. And what I realized through that project, even with a brand new saw and, and uh, tools that were needed, what I noticed is as, as we put those shelves in there, joints didn't fit exactly right. And even the, even the wood that we went and got at Home Depot had warps. It wasn't exactly straight, straight. The angles that we cut weren't exactly right. 
As I, as I screwed in those things with the drill, the, the screws were easily stripped. Things were broken and nothing looked perfect. And nothing has been perfect since Genesis chapter three. Everything has been warped. Everything has been easily stripped and joints don't align and things don't measure straight like they were meant to. And on a more serious note, relationships don't always work perfectly. And kids don't always go on the path that you've been praying that they would go on. And promotions don't always come through. And betrayal is sometimes apparent. And a Thanksgiving dinner doesn't go as planned. And there's been brokenness. And the good news of Christmas, the good news of Jesus' advent is that Jesus, in the mess, in the rebellion, in the sin, he comes and he pursues us. And he's longing to make it right and to give us the hope that creation will one day be fixed. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible summarizes Genesis chapter three here. The story, the, if you don't have families, if you don't have the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's a wonderful family Bible to get. And some of the Advent Guide is gonna point you to places in the Jesus Storybook Bible. I encourage every family here to, to grab that Bible as a, as a great supplement to your Bible reading. But li- listen to the way they summarize it here. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. One of our favorite Christmas songs that we sing, Joy to the World. Do you remember that line where it says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground? The next line says, he comes to make his blessings flow. Where? Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. God is coming to remake it all. As far as the curse has gone, his blessing will be found. And so God makes this promise in Genesis chapter three and then all throughout the Old Testament through the prophets, through the patriarchs of the Old Testament, God continues to build upon this promise of a rescuer and Dan did a beautiful job last week, if you weren't here, of taking us through some of those prophecies in the Old Testament where the rescuer, the deliverer is promised. Not for people that have it all together, not for things that are going well, but for times and people that are broken, that have disobeyed, that have strayed, that have experienced disappointment. God continues to promise this deliverer. And so that deliverer comes in Jesus. Thousands of years after this first promise in Genesis chapter three, we get to Matthew chapter one and we get to Luke chapter two. And we find that this savior This rescuer is is one who has come as the prophets have foretold, but he has come surprisingly, unlikely, in a way that they didn't completely expect. 
but they waited for thousands of years. And even today, one of the things that I've valued so much about celebrating this Advent season and in the traditional sense that many churches have adopted is is, is that it builds our anticipation to wait for Jesus, not only celebrating his first coming, but celebrating his second coming. That there's not only a first Advent, but there's there's a second Advent That the promise has been made and Jesus has fulfilled many of those promises, but there's still promises to be fulfilled and he he will fulfill those when he comes again. We are still awaiting an advent. This Christmas day, but this day of the Lord that will come soon. And so, like the prophets and the nation Israel and the people of old, we are a waiting people. We are a worshiping people waiting for the coming of Jesus. For uh, one beautiful year, I I got the opportunity to live in Denver, Colorado. And you know, as you look west, there's all the mountain peaks of the Rocky Mountains. And as you're in Denver, you see those peaks right next to each other, right? And and, and you, you know this, the peaks look like they're right there. But as you go into the mountains, you realize that those peaks are so far together. What we have in the Old Testament and in the coming of Jesus is we have two comings of Jesus that look like they're really close together. But in reality, there are thousands of years separating those two comings. How fast do you think Adam and Eve thought that promise would be fulfilled? That the serpent's head would be crushed? How long did those prophets think it would be until the rescuer would come? Within their lifetime? In the next 40 years, God loves that number 40, right? But no, they waited hundreds and thousands of years. And then through 400 years of silence between the closing of the Old Testament and the coming of the new prophet, John the Baptist, they waited and they waited and they waited. And Advent season is about anticipation and awaiting the coming of Jesus. You might turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Verses 22 through 25, where the Apostle Paul describes this waiting there. This New Testament, second advent waiting. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we what? As we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons the redemption of our bodies. See, we are saved, being saved, and awaiting salvation, the redemption of our bodies, the second coming of Jesus. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And the good news of Christmas is that Jesus makes promises and he fulfills those promises. He may not come quickly, but he comes. And he comes, he comes in the midst of the mess. Where's your mess this morning? What's the place of disappointment? What's the place of hurt that you need Jesus to enter into and give you hope as you wait? 
Genesis 3 caused a mess. But in Genesis chapter 3, God does not move away. Though there are consequences and that man and that woman are put out of the garden, Jesus comes to them and he says, I'm going to fix this. And Eve, you will be named Eve, the mother of the living. And in verse 21, he makes garments of skin for them. He clothes them, not with plants or with leaves, but he clothes them with the skins of animals. God makes the first sacrifice to clothe them with skin. And thousands of years later, he would clothe us with righteousness through the sacrifice of his son. So if you're here this morning and, and the merriment is less than you would like, take heart because Jesus comes in the mess. And every empty chair at your Christmas celebration this year is a reminder that the rescuer has come and is, in, is coming. And every delicious dish that you eat this holiday season is a foretaste of the goodness of Jesus when he comes again. Every unfulfilled ache that you have is a longing for the kingdom to come. Meanwhile, we wait, but we wait with hope. Amen. And so we light the candle of hope. Because as Paul will say in Galatians, in Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born to take away our sin. In the fullness of time, he came. And how did God send that savior? I mean, if you, if you and I are looking for a, a rescuer as the first century Jews, we're, we're looking for a, a mighty warrior, right? For someone to come with power and authority and and a strong arm and military might. But when Jesus comes, he comes in a, in a soft, in a surprising way, not as a military dictator, but as a precious baby child. He comes softly, surprisingly. Listen to the words of one Christmas song called Winter Snow. You could have come like a mighty storm with all the strength of a hurricane. You could have come like a forest fire with the power of heaven in your flame. But you came like a winter snow, quiet and soft and slow, falling from the sky in the night to the earth below. You came like a winter snow. Jesus has called us to wait, but he's called us to wait in hope because of the, the sure coming, the sure hope of his coming again when he'll put things right. If Jesus has come, it should make all the difference in the world for whatever it is that you and I deal with this morning. For whatever has us discouraged, for whatever has us downcast, for whatever has us disappointed, the coming of Jesus changes our perspective on all that because in the worst of time, Jesus entered in 
with a promise that he was sure to fill, fulfill. And he will fulfill it again. I want to give us a moment this morning just to reflect as Dan challenged us last week. This is, this is so much more than a time to shop. This is so much more than a time to buy gifts. This is so much more than to sing familiar holiday songs. This is a time to reflect and to adore that Jesus has come and that Jesus is coming again. And the chaos, the mess that we're in will be made right. The enemy will be crushed. So I want to invite you right now just to bow your heads and just to take your concerns, take your worries, take your disappointment to the Lord. As the band comes forward, I just want to invite you to speak with the Lord right now. Ask him to minister to you in that place that's broken, in that place that's disappointed. Just focus your thoughts right now upon the one who came and the one who is coming again. Thank him that you can have hope in the mess. Thank him for his amazing grace that while we have rebelled and turned against him, he has sought us in grace, that he has promised us life through the Messiah. It is a distracting time. God, make us worshipers. God, move our affections, move our heart to consider the gravity of this, that God has become flesh. He has taken on humanity, and not only that, he has taken on our sin and our shame. He could have sent a message, could have sent a life jacket. He could have given us 12 steps, but he came 
in human form, walked in the mess and took our guilt and shame. God, would you move that message in our heart? Would you help us to rejoice this season, to see beyond the sentimentality and the tinsel and the even good traditions, to be amazed and blown away that the Son of God has come and is coming again and therefore we have hope. Oh, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. Help us to be joyful, at peace, hopeful, and bright lights in the mess of this world. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.